When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This episode is titled, How to Choose the Right Stack for Your Clients. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a variety of technical stacks, but also what I refer to as a client stack. And we'll get into what that means once we get into the episode. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And we're going to start off with sort of uh, some definitions and to sort of get our hold on what uh, what is a tech stack. And the first thing here that I want to talk about is the formal definition of what a tech stack is. So uh, a tech stack is a collection or a stack, if you will, of technologies that are used together to build out an application. And that application can be not just on a website. It can be a web app, of course, a website, of course, but then also something like a desktop app, a mobile app, something like along those lines. Um, and I looked up, I actually just asked Bing AI for the most popular uh, tech stacks. And the popular stacks include um, MEAN, and that's an acronym, and that stands for uh, MongoDB, ExpressJS, AngularJS, and Node.js. Uh, also MERN, also an acronym, and that's uh, MongoDB, ExpressJS, ReactJS, and Node.js. And LAMP. Uh, which is Linux OS, Apache Web Server, MySQL, and PHP. LAMP being the one that I work with the most, having worked with so much WordPress, as well as I've been covering on our blog a whole bunch of stuff about uh, shared VPS and dedicated hosting. Uh, but Mike, you uh, mentioned there was a couple other sort of new or serverless stacks, and what would those be? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I just want to quickly touch on the fact that serverless exists, because those three stacks that you just mentioned are traditional server stacks, um, they're still definitely the most popular, uh, regardless of what Twitter and, you know, all the blogs say, but there is something that's coming up or not even coming up that is solidifying itself as a potential for you. And, and, uh, something like a Vercel Netlify for hosting Next.js for the actual front end full, full stack application with the APIs and then a planet scale. That's the database layer of MySQL database or really any da- database in this situation that supports serverless. Uh, that's the key here. So these stacks, I think like the differentiator here is that you don't do as much managing of just servers. Obviously, serverless doesn't mean there's no servers. It just means it takes away your full control of what you need to do to set it up. So instead of having to go in and provision a server that has all of these other technologies on it and then set up the communication between them, you're kind of only responsible for writing the code and pushing it to GitHub and it will handle all the provisioning, the continuous integration, uh, the scaling potentially even for you, everything like that. So you're, you're essentially losing the ability to be fully custom with the server, which is a negative in some situations, but you are gaining the ability to not have to worry about it too. So it's a give and take. Um, there are some limitations to the serverless platform. For instance, uh, cold starts are a problem where anytime you spin up a backend route, so any, any API, 
if it hasn't been hit in a little while, it might have to start like literally a, a little VM from scratch and spin up. And that could take anywhere between like 500 milliseconds to three seconds. Uh, so that first hit on your uh, serverless function could be a really kind of a, a longer run. So again, there are some other uh, give and takes. We've talked about serverless before. I don't want to go too far into it, but I did want to at least mention that. Um, one more stack that I do want to mention that's becoming very, very popular is the, uh, it, it's kind of similar to the LAMP stack, but it adds a um, a front-end layer to it. So instead of using just PHP to write the templating, you'll use something like Vue.js. So, and a lot of times as a framework for your PHP, for your backend routes, you use something like Laravel. So a Laravel Vue.js stack is pretty popular. Those are also usually hosted on something like Linux with Apache web server and stuff like that. So that's why it's it's similar to the LAMP stack, but with a little bit of an addition of a more progressive uh, front-end framework to it. You know what? <clears throat> as you as you talk through this, you know, uh, you know, I've read the the sort of marketing page for Vercel and Netlify and stuff like that as we've talked about it on this show. I haven't used them myself yet, but I what I think might actually be of great value to me and to others is like a full on sort of coverage of some of these stacks and like talking about what these stacks are commonly used for, talking about um, you know maybe some app, some popular applications that are built on them and things like that because. I, I often find that the marketing sites for these different hosting services or database technologies or whatever are very much dead or very much tailored toward either someone that's super techie or someone that's already used it before or like they've been told, oh, hey, man, like try Mongo. It's for this. And then you go on the, the you know, the, the marketing page and that, that that's just the impression I get. Maybe I'm you know wrong or something, but I think that maybe some coverage on the stacks, like just how I'm doing with the hosting would actually be kind of helpful and it would be a nice little cheat sheet even for myself so i remember all this stuff yeah absolutely we we can we can schedule an episode uh that goes deeper into all the hosting providers the serverless hosting providers uh and kind of the trade-offs gives and takes and what to use them for and what not to use them for uh but having having said that just a quick overview on like why when to use it and when to not use it honestly like serverless right now I would say serves like 80 to 90% of all use cases that you would have. There isn't too many potential problems using serverless that can't be solved over something like a traditional stack. So I think people are overcomplicating the thought of like, this isn't custom. I won't be able to do everything. Like you will be able to do pretty much everything that you need. You just need to make sure that there's certain like little things. And I'll I'll cover this in the episode that we're going to have in the future, certain very specific use cases that you might need to either work around, which is also very doable, or you might just need to obviously like avoid serverless for. So we'll I'll, I'll kind of do some more research on that and make sure I have all the use cases there. Uh, but it's a good idea, Matt. I do actually have one use case that I already know would would uh, be a, 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 a deal breaker. Couldn't think of the word, the phrase, a deal, a deal breaker for us, uh, which is we have one client, I'm not going to name him, but one client at, uh, would absolutely freak out at that little delay when the site hasn't been hit in a while and then gets hit, if he's that person that gets that delay, boy, oh boy, am I getting a phone call. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that, I mean, it's very possible that you have a, a person like that as well. And that's a deal breaker. That's a deal breaker. It's over, right? It's over for that. There's no way to really get around that. So there is a way to get around it, but yeah, like it's, it's a little bit more nuanced and, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it, but yeah, you're right with clients like that, when they're super anal about all the different little like inconsistencies from one phone to another and all from one page to another. And I know who you're talking about. This might not be the stack for them. No. Yeah. Cer- certainly not. I would think as well. Um, uh, 
But, uh, you know, we've obviously talked about the, you know, the formal definition and some formal stacks that people are using out there. But what about our definition for this episode? You know, I mentioned a client stack and our definition for this episode is a little bit different because we're talking in the context of clients and actually trying to market yourself and effectively sell them on using your services if you're running a web agency or a freelancer or something like that. And so our definition is a collection of technologies that are used together to build out a solution for a client rather than an application for a client. And the solution for a client may be multifaceted. And that's why I I consider these kind of two separate things. And it's because if they have a marketing site, that might need to be on WordPress. Now, that's a stack, right? Like effectively, it's like you're using WordPress. It's on LAMP. It's blah, 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 blah. You know, the list goes on. Maybe you have some other little bits and pieces that are attached to it. But WordPress might be great. For the marketing side of things, but then they might have a, some sort of web app that needs to be super, super secure and super custom. And at that point, it's like, oh, now we got to use, you know, custom code. We're going to maybe we'll still use the lamp stack, but now we're going to have to like code up something custom. So now already something else, something's changing. WordPress is out of there. But then they might have someone do using email marketing and the person that does their email marketing might have no idea how to use anything but constant contact or there's some sort of constant contact expert. And then it's like, okay, we're going to have to have constant contact in there. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So like, yes, each of those kind of components is a stack. Like constant contact is built on something. I have no idea. I haven't done any research on that. Your your web app might be built on LAMP. It might be built on Mean or Mern or it might be serverless. And then WordPress is going to be sitting on top of LAMP, of course. But you might need this, like all of those things together. I consider that sort of a client stack, if you will, because a lot of clients will come to you with what they think is a single problem. And then you break it up and you go, no, 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 no. Like we really can't have something that is super, super uber secure on WordPress. Like, let's not do that, especially, or maybe you can, but don't put it so that the marketing data that's all public and like the marketers are using it. And then you have like a separate login for like another team that accesses some super secure information on the same WordPress, the chances of accidentally publishing a super secure article onto the public site is, is huge, right? Just literally a couple of clicks and a like click, click published whoops. And then now you have a problem. So a lot of the time clients will bring you that one problem and you got to break it up. So why is this important? Before you get into there, I kind of want to add a little bit to that and that just I like the wording of client stack and versus tech stack. And this is where it gets kind of like really complicated. Like I, I always call everything a tech stack. And the initial one, like we talked about LAMP, MERN, all that, those are tech stacks, like core tech stacks. But 99% that you will not be able to do everything you need to do with just those technologies. You're going to have to add some sort of either front end framework. You're going to have to add some sort of like CSS utility framework, UI framework, authentication framework. None of those are covered fully unless you build them all custom, which is doable uh, inside those core stacks. So like LAMP does not cover how you do authentication unless you build it custom, which I would never recommend. So when you, when you start actually creating the client stack, you're going to be adding on a lot. And honestly, this is where the complications with web development in, in specifically come into play, where like you might be working across many different languages. You might be working with 15 different technologies on a single project. One of those going down could cause your entire project to go down. Having to manage and maintain all of your connections to all your different libraries and frameworks 
is a very big task. Like initially, you don't think about it that way because you're just putting everything together. It works locally. Everything's fine. Then you start putting it like start hosting it. And all of a sudden, the connections are broken. There's SSL issues between your different components of your stack. It becomes a mess. So when we're talking tech stack or, or client stack, like honestly, this is where it becomes complicated. This is where web development becomes complicated. You think e-commerce, it starts to add up even bigger. Like as soon as you hit e-commerce, then you're you're hitting a marketing department. They're like, well, we need 15 analytics platforms. That's part of your tech stack. Those 15 analytics platforms are going to slow you down. They're going to they're going to cause security issues. They're going to cause uh, data leak issues. Like that, all those things are part of your tech stack. Just because a marketing person comes up to you and says, "Hey, we need the we need this information," doesn't mean you have to say yes right away. This is kind of where I'm co- going with this. You need to really consider every single part that you're adding as a potential failure point, and not not to say that you don't want to add it, but you need to consider the fact that it can fail. And build a system that either detects failure and accepts failure or build a system that can be resilient in the sense that if it fails, it falls back on something or something else. So every part of the stack needs to be a serious consideration. You should not be adding frameworks and libraries all all willy-nilly without thinking about the, the, the consequences of what happens when that goes down. There's also other aspects even of it. And this is where the power of negotiation comes in. Like you're saying, there's a marketing department will come up to you or any other department will come up to you. Maybe they'll demand a bunch of things. And then you need to have a negotiation there where you need to have some pushback if if pushback is warranted. And they might be super firm on something and say, no, like we're absolutely we absolutely need this. And, you know, if you're a freelancer, you can walk away. Like if you know that what they're asking for is going to be an absolute disaster, that they're it's going to be really non-performant and they want it to be performant and there's just no way to really do it for the budget they have. Or maybe there's just no way to do it. Then you just say, okay, you know, maybe I don't have the experience enough to do this or I don't think it's going to work and I'm leaving. If you're an employee, you know, you can still have that sort of back and forth, but you are kind of under the umbrella and you might just be forced to do it as a part of the team, which kind of sucks. But having like this, like you're saying, is the complicated part, trying to figure out what pieces go where, what pieces people are demanding, even if they're redundant or, you know, oh, we need this other analytics tool because we have one person on the team that knows this analytics tool and doesn't know any other one and we're not willing to retrain them. You start adding those office politics into that client stack um, and it like it kind of sucks, but. It is a part of it. Uh, and one of the things Mike and I do a lot actually for, for clients is take a massive stack that someone has uh, given them and like reduce it. Like I always say, no, 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 cut, 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 because a lot of the things you'll notice, you'll put up some big analytics tool or a, um, a CRM or something like that. And you'll look at the login details and they haven't or login statistics and they haven't logged in in months. Or like people will be like, I really need analytics. I really need analytics. And then you realize that they haven't looked at the analytics in months and all they do is quickly take a look at the page views. And it's like, did you really like was it was the analytics like really an emergency? You know what I mean? Like, was it really that serious when you, you know, it's not really something that you necessarily really care about. Some people are all about it and some people aren't. And so you do have a bit of that office politics, this and that. And, and it is a good I mean, it's difficult, but it is good practice to have those sort of negotiation meetings and say, hey, you know, this is redundant. Hey, we should put this in a second phase of the project. Hey, like we shouldn't have this in here. This is going to cause performance issues. And I can show it to you. I can like set up a little test environment and show you how much it's going to hurt our page speed insights, things like that. And so to have that back and forth is uh, difficult to master. And you'll probably get like kind of rolled over 
for the first while, as Mike and I did for, for, you know, a few years, like to learn this stuff. But eventually you just have to start saying, Hey, this is not going to work. And like, if we do this, I'm telling you on paper now in an email, this is not going to work. And if we, when we put it together and it breaks, like fair enough, but it, it's going to be broken type thing. So there is a little bit of that back and forth. Don't be like angry at your clients and angry at your employer, but you do need to sort of fight for your technical position a little bit politely. So, I mean, we, we've already kind of covered some of this, but you know, why is it important? Why is a tech stack or a client stack so important? And your tech stack is so foundational. It's a foundational piece of your project and it dictates your applications overall capabilities. So if you in your client stack, if you decide, Hey, you know, I'm going to use, um, I'm just going to make this up. If you, I'm going to use a uh, Firebase and Firebase only allows me to have 100 users on their biggest plan and they're, they're absolutely not going to allow me to have any more users and I need 105. That's a capability that you just don't have. So now you might have, you might be scrambling for a solution either to replace Firebase or to use something else like, uh, or, or to like use another solution, like split the project into two subdomains. So it's two websites or, you know, yada, yada. But your applications overall capabilities are dictated by the stack. And so therefore you really need to sort of shop around, do a lot of research and have a lot of conversations with your client or your employer in order to make sure that all, all their requirements are met. And that all of your, um, all of your tech is able to actually perform to a proper level to their up, to their requirements. Um, you will also, uh, face typical issues. So, I mean, WordPress is famous for having the white screen of death. Uh, you can have other problems too. Like you can have, you know, maybe like, maybe like cPanel updates, uh, you do a cPanel update and you look it up and it's like, oh man, like, you know, there's a, there's a certain problem with cPanel or, you know, just like anything else, just like with windows, it's like, oh, I, you know, windows update, the actual windows update, the application that runs it, at least for me, windows update frequently breaks, um, all the time, even on my new windows 11 PC, go to update that won't update. Now it's all broken. It doesn't know what order it's in and that type of thing. So you need to be ready to sort of deal with those typical issues. And in the, in the face of WordPress, you need to be ready to do maintenance things. You need to be able to have either a staging environment or some sort of dev environment to test and do your plugin updates, test and do the platform, meaning WordPress updates as well. The theme, if you're using a, a theme as well, you do, well, I guess everyone uses a theme, but use the, uh, the theme, uh, update, like do the theme updates and make sure everything's working and everything's working as it should. So you need to be ready just to face those problems and know where to look, know where to look in the logs, know where to look uh, for like the updates, know where to check like, oh, okay, you know, it's time for us to do some maintenance and those type of things. And also your tech stack will, will influence how expensive the project may be to build, maintain and scale. This is a little bit on the tech stack and a little bit on you, maybe about 50-50. And that, that's because, you know, you might be super, super experienced with a bunch, with a serverless stack and you can just fire things together. But then if part of the project requires WordPress on LAMP, it's sort of like, uh-oh, um, you know, we're not that fast at this. We're charging hourly. You know, that's not great. That would also affect your maintenance because you're not super familiar with WordPress. So now it's like, uh, I got a big old error here. What is this? I already know that's the white screen of death. You don't even know that yet. So now you're researching how to, how to even start troubleshooting and also scale. So if everything you have is custom, 
I mean, any scale is going to have to also be custom, and that is going to affect the price, obviously, because you're going to have to bring devs in, bring server admins in, bring DevOps if needed, all that type of stuff. You're going to need to bring those people in in order to scale it. And But yet something else, like if you're simply uh, upgrading from the lowest shared hosting plan to the middle shared hosting plan is oftentimes you call or message your host, you pay the money, and then within a certain amount of time that they tell you, you're just upgraded, you have more storage and maybe a faster processor or something, whatever it comes with. And so you really do need to look at your stack and look at what what you're using, what service providers you're using and ensure that building, maintaining, and scaling is within the budget. So we've talked about, you know, what is the stack? What is a client stack? You know, different technical stacks and those type of things. How do we choose the right stack, right? Like we've talked and talked and talked about this, but now you're like, okay, I'm about to start a project. How do I choose the right one? I have a few big points here. So the biggest one, and this is a big one that Mike and I talk about to this day and struggle with to this day, and I think everyone does, is requirements gathering. You need to gather all your clients' requirements. You basically need to answer this question if we were to sum it up. What do they need this project to do? And I don't mean just in general, like, it needs to be a calculator. No, no, no. I want to know exactly what this calculator does. Like, is it a scientific calculator that has 150 functions? Is it a graphing calculator? I need to know what this project does with all the details. And if they're non-technical, so if the client is non-technical, get them to walk you through what they want in non-technical terms. This is extremely crucial because they'll think, oh, like localizing your site's super easy. And I don't mean localizing as in just getting it translated. They'll be like, well, you know, I need it translated. I need a, a whole bunch of different content. Uh, and we're using, you know, some random CMS from 40 years ago. Uh, is that okay? And they'll think it's okay. They'll be like, well, everyone else does localization. It's like, well, yeah, but like you have a $1,000 budget. We're trying to rebuild your site. And then you also now want localization for like 16 countries or something. It's like, hang on, that budget is not going to work. And I have experienced this, actually. Non-technical staff will often be given a list of technical requirements from their tech team. This is usually in a medium to large business. They'll have an IT team or some sort of techie inside of the inside of the, the building, and they will not be in your requirements meeting. Sometimes the person, the non-technical staffer, will take some initiative, go to the techie person and explain to them what they want. And then the, the tech person will give them a list of things they need. Oh, they need two-factor authentication. We need secure authentication. We need, we need, we need, right? And so when they come at you listing these things off, they may just be reading like items off of a list. And they don't know what they're actually for. I'll give you an example. So we had an example of somebody saying they desperately needed two-factor authentication and that they also needed email codes to be sent. That's the same thing. And so I brought that up and said to them, hey, that's the same thing. What do you mean? And I said, do you know, just ask them, do you know what two-factor authentication is? They said, no, I just know that the tech guys wanted it. And it's like, okay, right away, I'm now going to get you to walk me through what you want in non-technical terms, and I'm going to define them, I will still listen to what the tech person said. Absolutely. Because they may, may they may get something that I miss. But 100%, now I want both angles. I want the non-technical angle, and I want the technical angle, because I want the whole picture here. So I always recommend trying to get both, if possible, at the very least, get them to walk through everything in detail. This is a weird one, and it's a kind of a subsection of requirements gathering. And it's limitations gathering. 
Okay. It's still requirements, but I'm putting it in a little subsection because these are kind of weird and kind of almost negative in a way, but they're absolutely crucial. Budget, money, right? Of course. How much money do they have to work with? If they have a thousand dollars and they want everything localized to 16 different countries, uh, they want an e-commerce platform. They want to have you process orders. They want you there 24 seven for support. They want, they want, they want thousand dollars. Not going to work. It's already done. We're done. That is a limitate that this is part of the limitations gathering. Another thing about limit is time. How much time do they have to work with? We've absolutely been refused jobs because we are a small company. We can't. We literally do not possess the, the amount of people here to make something super, super complex, super, super fast. And so sometimes they'll go, you know what? We need something super, super fast. And we want a 24-7 support team ready to go, like literally call center style. Sorry, we can't go with you. And fair enough, right? Fair enough. So that's a limitation is how much time do they have for the project? Also, power. Now, this sounds weird. What do I mean by that? Well, do they have the power to make decisions and changes on the fly or do they need to talk to a manager? Maybe they have a big board meeting every time. Are they all tied up in red tape? This is important because, like I said, you're going to have that negotiation period of like, hey, I don't think we should use this. I think this and that, this and that. If you're in one of those situations in which like we need to bring a manager in and the manager always refuses to sit in on the meeting or uh, like every single time a big change happens, they got to go sit with a board and the board is made up of like 40 different uh, people from 40 different companies and they all they only show up twice a year. And, you know, the classic one is they show up like right before Christmas every time to do their year end, like their calendar year end thing. And then they're like, oh, well, it'd be nice if we just, you know, added 18 localizations to this for zero dollars. Then that person comes back to you and goes, you know, it's no longer, you know, 16. They want 18 now and stuff like that. Like it would, it's just, it's just chaos. And now it's like, well, great. Now the whole project's changed. Um, and, and it will just keep stalling and stalling and stalling and stalling. So this is a limitation that will affect the time limitation. And it's something that's absolutely critical and super important because the person that you're talking to might be super reasonable and say, you know what? You're right. Two-factor authentication does include email codes, but then they might also realize, well, I can't actually make that call. I got to talk to my boss and my boss is always gone. They're working at another company. I'll talk to them once a week. It's like, oh, like, here we go. And finally, the final limitation here, experience. How experienced are they running slash administering the project you're trying to build them. And when I say administering, I mean, say like using the CMS if they're the writer or managing orders if they're the person taking in orders from an e-commerce platform. Are they going to call you every single time someone has a problem? We were in a project in which every time someone had a problem with a password, they would call us. And it's like, okay, I go check. The login system works. My job is done. But now my now everything I was doing in that moment is derailed. I'm now checking, like, check the login system. Okay, it's working. Sorry, but they need to figure out their password. It's like, they don't know what a password is. I don't know. Like, that's not, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to help you with that. We have documentation on how to log in. If they don't know what a password is, I don't know how to help, you know. So what we call this in IT is handholding. How much handholding are you going to have to do? And this is a limitation. This is something that's going to affect the budget. You're going to have to charge more for it if you think it's going to happen. Or you might walk away from the project if it's really, really bad. Honestly, this limitations gathering is a really interesting term. And I think it's... As important, if not more important than the requirements gathering, because when you're initially starting, like Matt said, if you have a budget issue between you and the client for what you're building, that's it. You walk away. And Matt and I have walked away several times because of budget gathering, right? And 
that's why it's important to get every piece of information out in this section. I mean, we had an episode literally last week, I think, uh, if you listen to this in, in order, um, where we get far, further into requirements gathering and it's how important it is. But it, it is like the probably the most important metric to getting your project done properly and having a satisfied customer at the end. And be, th- this is for many reasons, but one thing is, is that the customer themselves don't know what they want until you have this session with them. They think they know what they want, but the reality is until you ask the right questions and until you extract the information that you need to build the project, they don't know what they want because their expectations might be way too high or they might be way too low. They might think that you, can, you can't build certain things that you can, and they might think that you can build certain things that you can't. So this is where you have to set those expectations and come to an agreement on a final product based on the requirements of what you're, of what you're getting to. And it, like I said, it, it's just super important to nail this part down and you're not going to nail it down in an email. You're not going to nail it down in a text chain. You're going to need a meeting for this and you're going to need to be like talking back and forth and potentially arguing. You're, you have to be okay with saying no. Like this is, this is where all the negotiation tactics come in. This is where all your communication power will come in. Like treat this as the most important meeting in the project's timeline. This is honestly the hardest thing. And Mike and I have even talked about making a web app to help with people, help people with requirements gathering because we've had so many problems. And we even discussed with somebody years and years and years ago how they do it. And they said that they have a five hour mandatory meeting with their clients. And if the clients won't commit to that meeting, then they aren't doing the project. And he said it's because it will literally save it's five hours all at once. And it will literally save, you know, 100 hours or something over the, the course of the entire project, which is huge, right? It's a huge time saving, huge investment. But it's an upfront investment for a huge, huge savings in time. So requirements gathering is super difficult. So if you're hearing this, and you think, oh, you know, I can think I can figure this out. You know, it, it does take practice. So if you go in and you get, you know, destroyed in the boardroom, it's like take that as a as literally like learning and then come back because we still mess it up all the time. And so do our clients. Right. Like it's like a, almost like a little fight in the boardroom, like a little verbal, like kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for technical and for budget and all that type of thing. Another thing here that you need to consider and is a part of choosing the right tech stack for your clients is your own personal considerations. So the first one, I just want to get this out of the way right away, is that people in the tech industry will no doubt generate opinions over time. Some are for good reasons and others are just personal bias. This is key. Do not let personal bias cost you or your customer money. And that includes time as well. Time is money. Don't custom code something that they, like let's say the client, would prefer WordPress. They're trained in it. They know how to use it and everything. But that and, and WordPress is appropriate for the application. They just want to blog. It's appropriate for it. You know, there's no technical reason why WordPress is something you should not use here and they want it. And you decide, ah, you know, that's not real coding. I'm not going to do that. Well, I mean, you're costing yourself time. You're costing yourself money. Now they got to learn a new thing. You got to maintain the new thing. They might not like it. You got to change it. A mess. Do not let personal bias cost you or your customer money. If WordPress, even if they ask for it, if WordPress is not appropriate for a technical reason, absolutely bring that up. But personal bias for me, cut it and get it out of here, right? But there are some personal considerations that you do need to take into account. And you can even bring these up in the in the boardroom as well, in the meetings. Ask yourself these questions. I'm going to sort of fire these off. What is your current workload? If you are already at capacity with workload, then that's it. You know, you might not be able to do this until 
in, for another two months. You not, not, might not even be able to start for two months if that's the case and it's two, and, and they need it done in a month, then that's it. What is my team most experienced at? So if they're super experienced at uh, Webflow for whatever reason and you want them to work, work on WordPress, they're probably going to be able to do it, maybe have a conversation with them. They're probably going to be able to figure it out, but they are going to be slower. And you can bring that to the client as well. Like I'll, I'm full disclosure in the boardroom. And I'll literally say, I haven't done this before. I'm willing to learn it. And I've learned some tools like this time and time again, but I am going to be a little bit slow at this. And I'm going to be a little bit new at this. How long does it take to learn a new technology that we haven't touched yet? So you know your team, hopefully, hopefully you work with them for a while. How long does it take for them to learn a technology that's say adjacent to what they know? And how long does it take them to learn something that's completely new? Going from serverless to LAMP is a big difference. So is this going to be something that takes a long time? Hopefully, you know which, what your team is normally going to have for you know learning time there or how much time it's going to take for them to learn it. Does the client budget work with a buffer zone for scope creep and unforeseen circumstances? So scope creep is something you should 100% avoid, and I'm going to address that again in a minute here. Absolutely should avoid that, but a little bit of it usually sneaks in. Unforeseen problems also usually sneak their way in. So that budget better not be right on the money like, oh, I'm making $10 an hour. Let's say you're happy with that for sake of example, $10 an hour. Something goes wrong. Now you're making a dollar an hour. We've done that and it friggin' sucks. It sucks. So make sure there's a buffer zone in there. How are we going to manage this? Meaning who's in charge? Is there a project manager? How are the policies going to be implemented and disclosed to the client? So are you going to have a penalty, a monetary penalty on last minute ads, meaning scope creep? Are you going to punish that and say, hey, we have to push the deadline? Hey, we have to add to the money. Hey, we have to do both. And how strict are deadlines? Are these sort of loose and the clients just sort of like just getting started? They don't have a strict deadline. There's no investors, you know, breathing down their neck or anything. And so you're able to like, you know, slowly but like surely get it done. Keep showing the milestones. They're happy. You're happy and hooray. So make sure that you sort of have, you know, your rules and your policies and your manager, whoever's managing these rules and policy set up for this project and different, depending on the size of your business, you might have different project managers. Some project managers are going to be better at doing the really, really like strict, like this has to be done November 1st. And then other ones are going to be much better at like kind of stretching that and getting the sort of abstract and the creative um, sort of vision out of, out of the team, but they're not that great at hitting the exact deadline. So, you know, choose your project manager accordingly and your policies on that policy on that project accordingly as well. And final, final one here. Are you needed after the project has shipped? This is something that's crucial because it's going to add to your team's workload if that's the case. And if you are needed after the project is shipped, can you handle the additional maintenance and or support duty? And you need to tell the client, you know, this is how much it costs. This is what it is, blah, 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 blah. Or you can say to them like, hey, we just shipped you a WordPress site. I recommend you find someone for maintenance and you, you know, you are able to leave. Or I usually just disclose it, you know, close to the beginning of the project. I'll say, just let you know, like these things are going to need maintenance. Um, you know, you can either hire us or hire someone else to do that. That's up to you. I do recommend you get maintenance done, regular maintenance done on this site. And if they do it, they do it. They don't, they don't. And, uh, that's it, you know? Um, and if I'm unable to do it because I have too many maintenance contracts or something, then I will just say that like, hey, I, you know, I'd have no more bandwidth for more, more maintenance at the time. But, um, you know, I can recommend somebody and I usually will have someone ready to recommend. And that's that. Personal considerations. Like, I, I think these questions answer everything that you'll need. Um, but the hardest part, I think, from all of this is 
figuring out timeframes for learning something new or figuring out something, figuring out the decision making of like, should we pursue a new tech or go with the older tech that we're ready with or, or already know, right? Because of how fast the web development industry moves mm-hmm. and the advances that have been made over the last five years, sometimes in web dev specifically, you need to consider that new technology a little bit more than if you were doing traditional Java or, you know, uh, C-sharp like development, right? Like if you're doing traditional backend developments that maybe isn't as breakneck speed, a lot of times you wouldn't almost even have this phase because you already have a defined stack that you use and this works, you know, it's worked for 10 years and it's been solidified for 10 years. So why go to the extra route? Because it's fast, it does everything. Um, whereas with web dev, the browser is constantly evolving. The client's needs are constantly evolving. So sticking to a tech stack for five to 10 years without experiencing the newer stuff is, I, I would say, detrimental. Not that you can't do a lot of what needs to be done with an older tech stack. You definitely can, like talking about WordPress. But even WordPress is evolving fairly rapidly. Like WordPress isn't the same as it was five years ago. There's a headless API for WordPress. It's getting faster. It's updating its PHP versions. There's new uh, visual editing tools inside of it. Like if you get stuck inside old WordPress, then it's the same problem. Even though you have everything down and it's perfect, the reality is that the customer might be expecting something better. So this is where I hesitate to always like be like, hey, only trust experience. You need to step outside your comfort zone sometimes in web dev specifically and see what's out there. Like Matt was mentioning, hey, serverless, right? The the ramp up from a server full to serverless might be faster than you think. Because if you already have server full experience, going to a platform that's designed to make it easier is something that might be like a day or two rather than, you know, the traditional, hey, I'm going from serverful to serverful. This might take me two weeks to ramp up. So that's why, again, I hesitate to be like, everything is going to be the same across the board. Just try new things sometimes. And I don't, I'm not saying always go for the newest and latest technology, but if something is bringing constantly in the in the uh, Twitter sphere or in the tech sphere, it's probably worthwhile to at least reach out and take a look at it to see how it can fit in your tech stack. Uh, maybe not necessarily obviously migrate to it right away. Yeah, there is. I mean, there and, and that would be a part of the requirements gathering as well. Like if the client, like, I mean, the, like I'll just use me as an example. I work with a lot of small, medium business clients. I've said a million times, but I haven't really used Wix, for example. I've used Wix very little. I think I signed up for a trial once. But I'm very fast at Webflow and use Webflow all the time because we have a client that absolutely loves Webflow. And so if someone comes to me and they say, I need a project done quick and fast and cheap and blah, and blah, 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 that is going to end up on Webflow more than likely. If it can, it will. And I will bring that up. And even if they say, hey, I want this on Wix, I'll be like, hey, I don't really know Wix, but if you want it fast and quick and whatever, I am much faster, much more experienced at Webflow. But I am willing to break that comfort zone to go to Wix and learn Wix, but we have to consider the other requirements as well. So that's why this is so difficult. It's like a tug of war. It's like a little fight <laughs> in the, again, in the boardroom of like, I want this, no, but I can only provide this and this and that, this and that. But breaking your comfort zone is really crucial for you growing as a developer. Um, but sometimes, again, with the requirements gathering, it's uh, just not possible. So it is that back and forth, back and forth. 
Last thing here are technical considerations. I just have a list of questions that I'm going to kind of list off. And, and these are questions that you need to ask and get the answers to. So is this stack? So let's say you have a stack you work with all the time. It's the stack that you think you're going to use. Is this stack secure enough? The stack is not secure enough for whatever reason for the project, then that's a more than likely a deal breaker or you're going to have to change the project in some way. Is there a way to leave this stack and is it easy, meaning migrating to another? So I mean, you know, typical, let's say a client stack where you're going from Webflow and you want to move over to WordPress. Is it easy to move? Well, there's ways to export code. There's ways to export your your content. So there is a path to migration. However, it's not going to be click export, click import, and then boom, your whole WordPress is installed, set up and ready to go. So you have to consider these things. You really need to consider these things if your client is sort of wishy-washy on things where they never really hard for like hardcore confirm anything. They just sort of, yeah, I think that should be okay. And then a couple weeks later, it's like, man, it'd be cool if we were on WordPress, not Webflow now. It's like, oh my, oh my God. Like, here we go. So you like kind of have to disclose those things to them if you know it, or like at least know your exits if you can. And if you're, you know, really selecting something that's really going to hold you there, you um, like, I would, I would disclose that to the client and be like, man, if we go in here, like we, we ain't coming out. <laughs> so we're sticking with whatever platform or whatever technology that we just selected. Can this stack scale enough for the client? And when I say enough, I mean, Always assume that the client will need to scale more than what they said to provide a buffer zone. I'll give you an example, just a real brief one. Let's say they say, I have 250 blog posts. My scaling over the next 10 years, of which I assume this website will last, is to 1,000. I will try to give them 1,250, so an extra 250, to even 2,000 blog post limit because... I will set up an email alert at, say, a 1,000, or I will periodically check. And if they hit a 1,000 before that 10 years, I will say to them, hey there, we've just scaled to what we thought we were going to in 10 years. Do not fret. Still business as usual. You can still submit up to 250 plus more blog posts. But I do want to talk to you now because we, do, we are going to have to scale. Things have changed. And they're going to love that. Because it's a buffer zone. They're like, they can just keep going and they can answer you in a week or two weeks or something like that. Instead of it being like, Hey, my site's not loading or I can't add any more blog posts. What's going on? It's like, Oh, here we go. And then you have to have that conversation, archive content, yada, yada. So can this stack scale enough for the client? And obviously I mentioned blog posts just for the sake of an audio show's example, but there's going to be other things like, Hey, like, this stack really doesn't run all that that performant on uh, this type of RAM if you're at that point. And uh, you can only afford that host with that type of RAM. That's it, man. Like, you're done. Like, you're going to have to choose another stack, something like that. Can we separate this project into phases? So we talked about how the client stack is multiple pieces, marketing this, email marketing. Now we have this site, landing pages, blah, 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 blah. So can we can we separate this into phases? And we do have an episode about this. Uh, a full dedicated episode about this, but basically it's something like month one, we'll do the marketing site. Month two, we'll do the email list. Month three, we'll do the landing page, etc. Those type of things. This can help with budget and timing. And also if you're using multiple programs, allows you to have a little bit of spin up time and allows you to do a little bit more of a concise 
uh, context switch. You can sort of context switch your team to WordPress. They kind of get practice. They, they get into the groove for a month or two. They get a bunch of stuff done. Great. Now let's go over to MailChimp. Okay. Now that, you know, now, now whoever's doing the MailChimp gets a little bit practice. You know, the list goes on. And finally, how much commitment is required to your selected technology? Now, this is related to the migrating one, but I'm going to explain this. So, for example, if you go all in on Webflow, but the, but the, like the client suddenly decides that they absolutely need WordPress, it is not an easy one to one import export, right? So proprietary custom code is custom code is usually not easily moved from platform to platform unless migration tools are created for them. So what do I mean by that? So with Webflow, there's an import export, but it's not one to one. It's not one to one. It's not, I export, I just import into WordPress and all of a sudden a theme appears, WordPress appears, it chooses a host and like, hooray. And for proprietary custom code to clear that up, if you're proprietarily custom coding absolutely everything, so you choose a stack that's say super common like LAMP, but every single thing that you build is proprietary and every single thing you do is reinventing the wheel. You made your own CMS, your own publishing platform, the list goes on. There are no import export to there. So even though Webflow to WordPress and WordPress to Webflow does have a path, there is no path for custom proprietary code. So you need to choose not just on based on the stack, but the, the, the technologies that you're using or the decisions that you're using, say, almost like, say, at the application layer, where like your decisions are crucial. If you, if you, even in, even in Webflow, if you have so many like proprietary and specific things that you're doing with the Webflow CMS, yes, you can export that like this toggle switch was one and this toggle switch was two. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt that migration time. That's why I always fight to keep things simple because clients prefer when things go smooth, smooth, like it, it, it's just when things go smoothly, you look more professional. They're happy. Even if they sacrifice a little bit of their functionality, they're usually much, much, much happier. So you need to choose like, and this is on you, not just on the stack. This is the stack and on your decisions. How much commitment is required for your selected technology? These... <sighs> The technical considerations, I, I don't know what I would add here. I think there's, I think this covers everything. One, one thing I want to emphasize is the separate, like separate a project into phases. I don't think in the last five years, I've had a situation where I didn't separate the project into phases because of the initial requirements gathering always being way too optimistic for the timeline that's been set. Um, the weird thing is as well, a lot of times because of separating the project into phases, it helps with the obviously helps with the budget, but it also just, you know, testing ideas is the key thing here. Most of the time when you separate it out, you'll probably be stuck at phase one, phase two for a while. Um, just because maybe there was issues implementing something, it wasn't the right market fit, et cetera, et cetera. So expect to pivot at some point in one of the phases. I, I again, I'm just trying to think back five years. Have there ever, has there been a project where I haven't had to pivot severely from phase like two to three? I think usually it's like, okay, we found the market fit in phase two. Maybe now we do this, right? And then you're doing a completely different meeting and you're gathering completely new requirements. So it's good to break it into phases, but I wouldn't spend a ton of time like, like planning out the further phases. I would focus very heavily on the initial phases. And just have a very rough scope of what you want the future to look like. And even 
maybe don't even phase out, you know, three, four, five, just be like, hey, there's going to be more phases. We'll tackle that when we get there. Here's what we want to do in the first six months. So that's where I would go with that. Um, yeah, exporting out, like being able to leave one stack for another, that's it is an important metric. It's another one of those things where like, it's going to require a ton of work no matter what stack you choose. So it's mm-hmm. not something you should be able to rely on. Uh, it's something that is great as a feature add, but it's I, I don't think it's a critical thing for deciding on a framework or or like a you know a, a CMS or some some sort of tool. Um, because regardless, it's going to be a big undertaking. I had to help a friend do this recently, or like the last couple of years from i think wordpress into another cms and it required like a lot of script writing to formulate the data into the right like format even though it had a converter uh so even after the converter i had to write a script to help it do what what needs to be done and then after that it also required a bunch of custom work going in and fixing stuff that the converter couldn't catch so just take that with a grain of salt always being like okay if if you are going to switch just expect there to be a very significant migration effort it's only really like an email marketing platform that's usually easy to switch because they'll literally be like, move from MailChimp to us and click this button to do it. And then you do it and maybe there's a little bit of bumps, but it's a little bit of bumps. No custom script writing. So like, you know, in that client stack, maybe that's easy to leave, right? Yeah. That would be like something to consider. But you're 100% right. Like WordPress is, I mean, there's a path, but it ain't clear <laughs> sometimes. But uh, is that is, is that all the technical considerations that you have to add? Is that uh, I think that's it. Yeah, I think you co- we covered everything really well here. Uh, this should help people get started with you know choosing the right tech stack for clients. Uh, I, yeah, find find one that works for you and kind of roll with it. That's the best thing you can do. Absolutely. And make sure you practice those negotiation skills and talking in the boardroom. You know, you're going to end up overstepping sometimes or understepping. You might get stepped on sometimes and you got to push back. And it's it's a back and forth. And Mike and I have been at it for like almost 10 years now at this point. So like we're kind of used to it. But, uh, you know, we still mess it up. It's still like a negotiation and someone might be way better at it than you. And then you might get rolled over and it's a whole thing. So, uh, you know, it's part of the fun, if you will. But uh, it's part of the process. But, you know, get those skills up, get that practice up. But that concludes this episode. If you want to support episodes like this into the future, that's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things, and many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital and blueblackdigital.com, Tim from the Web Hacker on the webhacker.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff and Kale, Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com, Gunner Brunette via gunnerbrunette.com, Watoto Coding via watotocoding.com, and Garrett Segal. We also have a Scrimba... A discount link that'll be in the show notes as well as the show description. If your podcast app does support links, go and check that out. Otherwise, go to htmlallthings.com and it will be in the podcast show notes. And that's it. That concludes this episode. And we're going to sign right off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.